listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. To hear the full show each day, tune in to AM550 and FM102.9 WDUN or log in to accesswdun.com and click the Listen Live button from 9 to 11, Monday through Friday. One of the things, you know, that obviously we're up against this 80th anniversary, 79th anniversary of D-Day, over the weekend there were the uh, uh, U.S. uh, and the Holocaust uh, specials on PBS. And, you know, this is an issue that continues, and unfortunately uh, anti-Semitism is on the rise around the world and around Georgia. And so I wanted to talk with Dove Wilker uh, from AJC, which is the American Jewish Committee, um, the other AJC, if you live in Atlanta, and he's with us right now. Dove, thank you so much for being with me today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on today, Martha. So I, I know you don't get that involved with local politics, but there was a anti-Semitism bill in the Georgia House last year that did not make it all the way through. But it, I know there's a lot of work being done on it, and it looks like it may make it through on the second year. I know there's a lot more sponsors for it. There's a lot more momentum around it. And, uh, you know, I look forward to helping it get passed next year. Well, thank you very much, Martha. In fact, I was I was intimately involved with that specific bill, so I'm br- glad that you brought it up. You know, we were very disappointed that the bill didn't make it to a vote on the Senate floor uh, this past session. But, you know, benefit of the Georgia legislators that there's another year of the session, another opportunity for us to get this important definition of anti-Semitism added into, into the Georgia Code. Well, and it is one of those things where if you've been around the Capitol long enough, it's not unusual for things to take several years, even great ideas to take mm. several years. And it's it's disappointing sometimes, but it's it's the way the process works. <laughs> it's just, you know, you just have to be patient. You have to be willing. You know, as Zell Miller used to say, you got to take a half a loaf and then you got to take another half of what's left and then you got to keep working <laughs> till you get it. Um, exactly. So tell us a little bit about what is, um, you know, what the status is now of anti-Semitism around the world. Where are we seeing the worst incidences? And, you mm. know, do we do a good job here in America fighting against it? So, you know, uh, Martha, this is such an important topic. And what we're seeing is that it continues to be on the rise. I don't want to say that one country or state or city is worse than any other. Uh, because that then creates sort of a level of hierarchy. But I will say that the Jewish communities in Europe face a very different type of anti-Semitism and fear of anti-Semitism than we have in the United States. Although anti-Semitism in the United States continues to be on the rise, which is why the White House uh, issued a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism, something that American Jewish Committee has been calling for for a number of years, something that is following up on the national strategies that we've seen in Germany and France and the UK and uh, other countries across Europe. And so what, what we are finding is that the community is, the Jewish community is anxious. Uh, we are seeing just two weeks ago, we saw anti-Semitic flyers again uh, rear their ugly head in, in, in Roswell and in Alpharetta. Uh, we've seen the similar flyers in Dunwoody and Sandy Springs and Carrollton, uh, in Midtown. I mean, you name it, they've been there. So, you know, what we are, what we are grateful for though, is that 
our political leadership takes this seriously, our business leadership takes it seriously, the religious community takes it seriously, and now the White House is showing that this is a a problem that needs an interagency governmental response. And, you know, it's and we live in a place where we have a fairly large Jewish population, Um, Mm. you know, so so there is interaction on a day to day basis for a lot of people. Um, You know, in Europe, it's still a fairly small number for obvious reasons. Uh, I I work with a a lady by the name of Sheila Gewalb in the UK Mm. who has this wonderful program she's a part of where she they not only fight against anti-Semitism, but they go to UK schools and they t- mm. they share things like Passover traditions and mm. Seder dinners and things like that so that kids can ask questions that maybe have never been exposed to a Jewish person before, never met a Jewish person before. So yeah. I love that idea. I met her just peripherally through someone else I was working with, and I said, I love that idea because... Mm. That's kind of the way I learned. I mean, my mom yeah. worked in a business where she interacted with a lot of people of different faiths. And through that, I got invited to things like bar mitzvahs and other mm. kinds of events where I learned about different kinds of people. And they're not really different, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, no, of I course. But, Traditions but, but Martha, where you I mean, see things. Right. And, and to your point, you know, growing up when I was in high school, we always had a Holocaust survivor come and speak. Uh, to our class. I mean, I grew up in northern New Jersey where there, the, the Jewish community was much larger. But even even in metro Atlanta, Martha, you know, the, the Jewish community is about 150,000. But there's areas of metro Atlanta where, you know, it is unlikely that somebody has met somebody who's Jewish. And let's not even forget that in, you know, rural Georgia, you know, there there are many places that used to have Jewish communities, but you know they might still have a synagogue, but the communities no longer exist. The the members have moved closer to the cities, and and that's actually a problem. Uh, you know, when I often talk about Fitzgerald, Georgia, where one of the most important civil rights leaders uh, and Jewish Americans in our history, a gentleman named Morris Abram, is from. You know, there there's a synagogue there, but there might not be ten Jews that live in Fitzgerald or in in, in the surrounding area of Cordell. You know, and that that creates a challenge for people to understand the diversity, what makes Jewish people different, what makes us similar uh, to the point that you were making. Do you know how many and this may be a really off base question, but I've come across a lot of people who were um, were culturally Jewish, but when Mm. they immigrated to America, they maybe moved to a place where there were no Jews. And so they just adapted and took on you know, whatever religion was there, a lot of times Catholicism, that happened a lot in mm-hmm. New Orleans, in Louisiana, and that kind of yep. area. Do we know how much of that happened or no? <clears throat> I, 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 unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know. Yes. Um, you know, we, when people, when we count the number of Jewish people, we, we don't limit it to those who practice actively, uh, you know, attend synagogue services, you know, on a, on a weekly or a monthly basis or even once a year. Um, but what we are finding is that there's almost a resurgence in, in, in part because of anti-Semitism. There's a resurgence in sort of this Jewish identification that people have, saying, sharing that they are, you know, of Jewish heritage, uh, because they they too, as much as they don't practice Judaism at all, they feel this anxiety 
because of the way that Jews are being treated. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I love, I mean, I remember the day in my church, I went to this little Lutheran church in Decatur, which isn't even there anymore. It's gotten so small mm. that, that, I mean, the building's still there, but I think it's a school. But I went to this little yeah. church in Decatur, and and I remember the day when our pastor got up there and said, you know, we're going to have a different relationship with Jews. Any, Jews. We're not, mm. we don't look at them as Christ killers anymore. We don't look at right. them as this kind of stuff. And that it's a different, yeah. and that was probably in the 70s, maybe very mm. early 80s, where there was this sort of, um, reconnection between evangelical Christians and the Jewish community, and we've sort of yeah. seen that continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. I mean, one of the largest groups today that's actively combating anti-Semitism is Christians United for Israel. You know, that was an organization founded by Pastor John Hagee to ensure and increase the level of, of Christian support for Israel, and now they, too, have realized that they can't just stand by while Jews are being attacked. And so they are expanding their support to include so that it's not just about Israel, but also an understanding anti-Semitism in a different sort of way. So tomorrow, of course, is the anniversary of the D-Day invasion, and and we're Mm. going to be playing the FDR prayer. And there's a gentleman by the name of Lee Habib who does this podcast called American Stories, and tomorrow his podcast is going to be about that prayer and how it was picked up by the BBC and it was heard by 180 million people, which was a lot of people at that time, and that the next day, Anne Frank put in her diary that she had heard the prayer and that help was on the way Mm. and she felt encouraged, Mm. and that was such a gut-wrenching story to me because we know now what happened to her. I mean, eventually right. she got, uh, they got, they got, um, you know, betrayed and yep. they were taken into concentration camps. And ironically, you know, her mother and sisters died and, and Otto Frank lived a very, very long life. I mean, he yep. was able to keep the story alive. And for many of us, that's the, um, that was the introduction to for us into what happened during the Holocaust, right? For many yeah. of us in schools across America and probably across the world, the Diary of Anne Frank was was that book that made us start asking questions. So, yeah. you know, we're thankful to have that, and we're thankful that people are still remembering those stories because we can never forget to have... You know, right. it's it's right. it can happen at any time. And the thing that I yep. love the most about the Holocaust Museum and is that it shows at the end of it all the other genocides that have happened. It's not mm-hmm. gone away. You know, genocide right. has not gone away. Yeah. No, it's 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 really tragic, uh, a tragic story for humanity. Uh, you know, as you were sharing that about and Frank, I was literally getting chills uh, because it is so important that we remember our history, that we learn from it. And, and unfortunately, you know, with the other genocides that have taken place, I mean, even let's look in Sudan today, there's still a civil war going on there. And so it's, an, it's important that we remember and that we, that we learn and that we teach the, the, the history that we have. And for the Jewish people, you know, part of our challenge is not just speaking of, of the Holocaust, but also of educating folks about the other uh, 
I don't want to call them genocides because they weren't at the same level, but, you know, Jews around the world have been massacred for, for 2,000 years. Uh, just the other day, we commemorate the Farhud, which took place in 1951-1952 in Iraq, which is the massacre of Jews as a result of the creation of the State of Israel. So, you know, that's just one. I mean, right. and but those sorts of things happened in countries around the world. And sadly, you know, it's part of the anxiety that we are feeling in the United States today is that American Jews, you know, just last week they began the trial for the for the man who massacred 11 Jews at a Shabbat morning service at the Tree of Life synagogues in Pittsburgh. Right? It took five years, and now we are beginning the trial. Right. So these stories are, you know, still with us today, sadly. Absolutely. If people want to know more or do more, how can they do that, Dove? Uh, so the best thing to do is visit uh, ajc.org, uh, AmericanJewishCommittee.org. Uh, that's a great place to be able to learn more about anti-Semitism and about Israel. Uh, we have a wonderful tool called Translate Hate, which is an online glossary of anti-Semitic terms that will help folks to learn because it all starts with education. It, it's all about being aware. If you see something, say something. So our our website and our tools help facilitate that learning. Um, and And the second thing to remember is that you know, you can always take action, right? You can always contact your elected officials. We are going to be doing trainings, advocacy trainings related to the anti-Semitism bill in the state of Georgia. So I invite your listeners to join us for those trainings and to engage with us in meeting with elected officials by emailing us at atlanta at ajc.org. Dove Wilker, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me, Martha. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me right now is Lee Habib. He is the president, uh, vice president of content at Salem Media Group. He's the host of Our American Stories, and he's a Newsweek columnist. Lee, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Martha. Thanks for playing that every year. I tell you, I... I was at Talkers with you this weekend, and uh, you told a story about D-Day that really brought me to tears. And my dad was part of the Southern Invasion and uh, that happened later in the summer. He came up through Italy and, and into France. They, they liberated several towns, and then he and four, three of the other guys in his unit were captured um, in early September of 44, and then they... Uh, were they escaped around April of 44. Now, my dad always played that down. He said, you know, well, they were just old men and kids by that time. They knew they were going to lose the war. They just didn't feed us. So, you know, he always played it down. He never talked about it much. But it was an event that shaped his life. And those men, those four men, uh, up until my dad died in 1991, my mother didn't die until 2010, and up until 2010, on New Year's Eve, first phone call we always got was from Jimmy O'Brien or Jimmy O'Brien's wife or one of the other men that were in that group of four that were part of that POW group. So it's an experience that we as Americans need to continue to remember, but we need to understand it. Well, there's no doubt on that, that prayer. The story I told was 
how that prayer came to be. And, you know, I tried to take people back to, to June. We, were, we got together on June 2nd. And by June 2nd, the, the D-Day invasion was on. question was, what's the right day? What's the right weather and circumstance? And on the 6th, when the invasion is launched, Roosevelt has already let the American people know the invasion was launched. Um, he wasn't worried about the secrecy of it anymore. It, the, the Germans by then knew. Um, we, had a, we had the element of surprise, but lots of things were going to go wrong. Roosevelt understood that this was going to be a long, hard war. And, I, you know, I tried to remind people at that talkers convention that day, if we remember what it was like on 9-11, the solemnity, the silence, the stillness, we all walked around not speaking. Our churches were filled. Our synagogues were filled. Well, my mom reminded me on June 6th of 1944, that was America. We knew what was about to start. This was not going to be a little war. This was going to be so much worse than World War I because this was a mechanized war with an evil opponent. And we only had a thin veil of how evil this guy was, but we knew this was not going to be a small or short war. Um, this could be, uh, by estimates from Eisenhower and our own War Department, um, hundreds of thousands, if not a million uh, losses, and that's deaths, let alone casualties. So imagine being Roosevelt. What did he say to the American people that night on June 6th? And so all, all day and the day before, he writes uh, of this prayer, not with his speechwriting team. And he had a fine speechwriting team. He wrote it with his daughter, Anna. And Anna had always joked that her father was a, a, a guy who always wanted to be a pastor, an evangelist. Just, her father loved the King James Bible. And he was an Episcopalian. And his faith was important to him. And so they constructed this prayer together and delivered it. It was 535 words. And it became the largest mass prayer uh, in American history and in world history. Is, as I described in, uh, last Friday, uh, wasn't just Americans who heard it. The miracle of radio. Radio was the mass medium of its day. There was no TV in 1944. Families gathered around the radio. Well, they gathered around the radio in Europe, too, thanks to the BBC. That transmission line hopped across the Atlantic 3,000 miles, got picked up by the BBC, and then it got picked up by radio, radio towers all over Western Europe, all of, which, all of whom had been conquered by Hitler and were hostages, essentially, in their own, in their own countries. And one young lady, one young lady in Amsterdam heard it and she was a young teenage jewish girl sequestered in a secret annex a small attic room in amsterdam and when she heard the american president's voice invoking almighty god it gave her hope and that young girl's name was anne frank this is what she wrote in her diary that day anne frank the best part of this news is that i have the feeling friends are approaching We've been impressed by those terrible Germans for so long that the thought of delivery and deliverance fills us with confidence. I may yet be able to go back to school in September or October. Of course, she never returned to school. She died at Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in February or March of 45. And Roosevelt predicted that our boys would not come home, right? He did. And one of those boys was my mother's brother. Her only brother, her, her father's only son, John Lapadula, 
volunteered at 17 for the Army the moment he was old enough to do so. He was my mother's only brother, my father's only son, the uncle I never knew, because he was one of 416,000 Americans who died defending the world from tyranny by war's end. 29,000 died liberating Normandy. 29,000 died by August when we liberated Normandy. This is an extraordinary cost, an extraordinary story of American heroism and beauty and love and courage. And that this kind of thing isn't taught in our high schools for weeks at a time, rather than what they're teaching for weeks at a time. Um, this is one of the great, uh, one of the great cases of child abuse and almost patent education criminality um, that any of us have experienced. And this is why so many of us are marching on school boards. It's not left versus right. John F. Kennedy lost a brother, Joseph, the star, flying planes in World War II. JFK himself was in a PT boat, right? So the old Democrat-Republican divide wasn't we hate our country. It was what's the proper level of taxation? A good and fine argument for us to have. This new breed of pro progressive is something different than the traditional Democrat and Republican. And that's, that's why we tell the stories we tell every day on Our American Stories. What did we used to agree upon? What fundamental things did all of us used to agree on? And this is the way we can separate ourselves ultimately from these really nasty progressives who I don't know why we even call them progressives because they're actually regressives. They want to regress to communism, to plan the planned state running our lives with the citizens mere vassals. This struggle, World War II, was a struggle against that kind of totalitarianism. And we're finding it now in our own country. It's sad, but this is the kind of thing that inv invigorates us all. Hearing these words from a Democrat president praying, a Democrat president praying to the world, uh, and him knowing that was the only solution. That was the only solution was prayer. We knew we had the military capability, uh, Martha. We knew that. And we harnessed our, our, our industrial capacity. But here is Roosevelt knowing that we had to harness our spiritual capacity, too, because this was a spiritual battle. This was good versus evil, clean, cut, and simple. Not allowed to say those things anymore. Remember what he called them, you know, he, 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 the, the way he described them. The end of that, the last line, the last paragraph is, with thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogancies. My goodness, be still my heart. Well, and it's it when you look at something like this, you say, uh, what is the cost of war, right? You should not go to war unless you're willing to do that. You should not go to war unless you are willing to annihilate your enemy and that they, they surrender. That is the definition of victory. And too many times we're trying to equivocate with the people that are our enemies, and we're paying a price for that right now. Well, we are, and our enemies are different, right? Um, you know, with, with radical Islam, they're not, they're not states, so it's more difficult. Um, and when they're not states and they're using, willing to use women and children as shields and hide and run, um, maybe we have to be careful of what kind of entanglements we get into around the world. Because if we can't win a war, we shouldn't start a war, and we can't solve every problem there is in the world. Moreover, I think we have to properly identify our enemies. You know, Churchill... And a few real great prognosticators in America understood the nature 
of the Nazi threat. Reagan understood the nature of the Russian threat in the Soviet Union, but he didn't want to go to war with them. He went into an economic war with them and ultimately bankrupted them by advancing Star Wars, getting us to spend a lot of money, forcing the Russian economy to go down to its knees. It simply didn't have the capacity. And we have a new enemy, China. Lee Habib is with me right now. What I love about Lee is our American stories. Um, I had not heard of that until the last couple of weeks when I was reading the uh, the program for talkers, and I started listening. And I don't know how I hadn't found you before, for Lee, but I have loved it, and I am like a an apostle of American stories now. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, Martha, I went to law school with Laura Ingram, and I co-founded her national radio show. I work at Salem with some of the best people, Dennis Prager and, and Eric Metaxas. I mean, people who I really admire. But, but, but these are political and partisan shows. They, they have a point of view. And, and too often, we're, not, and we're doing the news every day and the headlines every day. And so in 2016, Bill Bennett, who was at the time our morning host at Salem, asked me a question. He said, what would this American life sound like, the big NPR show? If the people who made it really loved the country and didn't want to fundamentally transform the country, loved it, warts and all. It's not a perfect country. And it was a challenge to me. And so I formed a nonprofit. I got the blessing of Salem to do it. Some really important donors around the country gave me quite a bit of money to do it in the, in the tens of millions. And I hired a, a very large staff. And every night, two hours a night around the country, you can hear the show. And it's only stories, and, and it's never the news. And it's stories about remarkable innovators, stories about ordinary folks who do extraordinary things through their faith, because um, faith plays a central role in our country, thus a central role in our American stories, but not just Christians. Jews have contributed to this country. Hindus and Buddhists have contributed to this country. The Indian American diaspora coming over. And so the, uh, the celebration and the honoring of uh, that kind of diversity George Washington, the first, right? He goes up to Rhode Island and visits with the synagogue there to let him know that all are welcome here in this country. But we're going to subscribe to an ethos of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And so this show, well, it became a hit, Martha. I mean, it took a while for Laura's show to, to get the traction that we got. Um, last year, iHeart and Premier syndicated us. So now we're syndicated by the biggest syndicator in the country, and the podcast has grown 4,000% in a year and a half. And I think it's because Americans are starving to mm. hear the stories of their own country. I was just thinking the um, same thing. People are hungry to hear these kinds of stories. Uh, they're hungry to hear the good about America because they know in their soul. You know, it's kind of like what George Bush said. Uh, even people who aren't free know what freedom is. You know, even yes. people who are hearing bad things about America know that America is a good country. Close your eyes and imagine a world without America in it. It would be a very dark place. Lee, we're, we're up against a hard break. You know how the business works. Tell people how they can find Our American Stories. Just go to ouramericanstories.com or go to the iHeart podcast app, the iHeart radio app, and uh, you can find us there on iHeart anywhere. Um, we're, we're everywhere. We're easy to find. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. 
Congressman Andrew Clyde. Welcome to the program. How are you? Well, good morning, Martha. It's always great to be with you on WDUN. Thank you. So listen, um, tell us a little bit about your bill and then what happened on that Wednesday uh, and then what ultimately happened. Well, the bill is HJRS 44, and it is a resolution of disapproval to take down the ATF's unconstitutional uh, pistol stabilizing brace rule uh, that basically makes people, and, and there are millions of law-abiding gun owners out there uh, who own stabilizing braces, but it makes people with stabilizing braces into felons uh, if they do not either register their stabilizing brace with the ATF or, uh, you know, remove it, destroy it, uh, turn in their firearm, uh, destroy their firearm, uh, you know, any one of the, the four things that the ATF says that you can do. But yet, you know, in multiple states of the Union, six states in the city of D.C., uh, um, you can't own a short-barreled rifle, uh, and therefore you can't own a brace on a pistol because ATF has basically taken and redefined the definition of short-barreled rifle to include a pistol with a stabilizing brace. So um, it takes that pistol with the brace, and it uh, it adds it to the National Firearms Act in 1934 as a restricted firearm. And that's a breach of the separation of powers uh, of Congress, and it's also unconstitutional for them to do that. Uh, This is the most overreaching executive order on gun control uh, in my lifetime. And so what's the status now? Well, the status now is, uh, after that little clip that you just played about uh, what I said happened after the Wednesday vote against the rule, uh, I was told Tuesday that the bill would be on the floor this this week. It was pulled, and uh, so I made that public. And then now the bill is back on the floor. We will be voting on it on Tuesday. I'm very thankful for that. For that, very thankful that leadership, that Republican leadership, has seen that that our our God-given constitutional Second Amendment rights are not to be used as a bargaining chip, uh, and that's just not right. Uh, you know, this this doesn't hurt Andrew Clyde, uh, though I'm a sponsor of the bill. This hurts millions of law-abiding gun owners and American citizens, service-disabled veterans who use stabilizing braces, you know, to help them uh, enjoy their Second Amendment rights. So there's been a little, uh, you know, parsing of words between you and the leadership where um, uh, what was reported that you said is what you just said, that if you didn't support the procedural vote to advance the debt limit increase, it would be very difficult to bring your Congressional Review Act resolution to the floor. Um, then uh, Justice Scalise, I'm not Justice Scalise, Steve Scalise said, no, um, you know, that's not what we said. We said it would be problems with passing the bill. But to me, that's the same thing. I mean, you may have said it a little differently than the way Scalise said it, but it was the same, that the intent was the same. So how is your relationship now with leadership? Because you're in leadership. Uh, well, um, no, I'm not in leadership anymore. <laughs> um, I was the freshman representative to leadership. Got it. But, um but, uh, no, I think I have a good relationship with leadership. I mean, they understand what I stand for and that I don't back down from what I stand for and uh, that I'm happy to fight for what I stand for. Uh, and I stand for defending the Constitution, defending the Second Amendment uh, in all parts of the Constitution. 
and, and that's why the people of the ninth district elected me. Um, so, so I think our, our relationship uh, is on the path to restoration, and uh, we'll see. We'll make sure that this bill comes to the floor on Tuesday, as I was promised. Uh, I think that will be a big part of it. You know, keeping your word up here. Yeah, uh, is very important. It's very important. So um, the the speaker said right after the vote that it was not every on the debt ceiling limit that it was not everything that they wanted, but that he was going to go back to work to try to get more of what they tried to get in the original agreement. Have you seen evidence of that? That he is working towards, you know, keeping y'all going towards spending less. He even said yesterday, just because there's a limit on what you can spend doesn't mean you have to spend all of it. Are you? seeing that there is a continued work on the part of the speaker to reduce spending well that is a critical statement right there because you can have a spending cap but you don't have to appropriate to that spending cap and being that i'm on appropriations uh then that is a conversation that we are having in appropriations and i'm very thankful for that because i believe we should be spending much much less than the cap and I'm going to work hard to make sure that we spend much less than the cap. I'd like to see us right back to the 2022 levels, uh, which would save over $130 billion um, over where they want to be. But, um, but that I'm sounds reasonable. The- 2022 sounds reasonable. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely is reasonable. Um, and, and I'm very encouraged by uh, Speaker McCarthy's uh, comment on that. I think that shows that... Um, He's listening to, uh, you know, a third of the conference that said this is a bad deal. I mean, 73 folks basically voted um, against this deal. And that is a massive number. More Republicans voted against it uh, than Democrats voted against it. And more Democrats voted for it than Republicans. Uh, That tells you that it is not a conservative deal. So we got an email in uh, with a question that, it, which I know I asked you probably at the very beginning of your term, but I can't remember what you said. So you are a gun store owner. How is it that you have walled off or what have you had to do in relationship to managing your business and being in Congress? Uh, well, the, the good thing is I've got phenomenal employees. And basically, I turned the running of the business over to the employees uh, that's kind of it's an incorporated business, so it, it has its own legal identity. Uh, and so that's uh, that's kind of the way it works. And I'm very proud of my folks. I'm very proud of what they do. Uh, I think they're very proud that they are defenders of the Second Amendment, um, because that's literally what federal firearms licensees do. They allow individual citizens to um, to uh, to exercise their second amendment rights and does clyde in the other second part of the question that the listener sent in was does clyde armory do business with the federal government or no um clyde armory does yes we actually we do and there's no there's nothing against that um what we have done is is in perfect compliance with ethics and we have a letter to that effect absolutely and i remember we talked about this at the beginning of your term but i honestly andrew had forgotten kind of what the structure was and i thought the question that came in from the listener was worth asking because you know people need to know especially people in business i think people in business while they are much better, I think, members of Congress, but they have things they have to do to be sure there aren't conflicts between the businesses that they have and the work they do as a congressman. 
Yes, that's very correct, and we're very conscious of that to make sure there are no conflicts of interest. Absolutely. So what do you want people to know right now about where the Congress is? I mean, we got through this big debt ceiling deal. It was bipartisan, but it wasn't as conservative as any of us would have liked it to be. And where are we today? Well, right now, the next fight, as I I said, is the appropriations. And we have to make sure that uh, uh, that we appropriate to a lower level than what the cap was. I think that's very important to bend down the spending curve. Uh, We need to rescind much of what uh, the Democrat administration, uh, the Democrat House, appropriated during the last two years, actually really four years, um, to to eliminate these radical agenda items that the Biden administration is putting forward, uh, things like DEI and... um, uh, you know, the wokeness that you see in our government, that you see everywhere, and they're spending massive amounts of money on it. The Green New Deal subsidies, uh, uh, everything that, that would push us away from exceptionalism in America um, and toward this, uh, as I said, the, the Green New Deal aspects of, um, of, of a woke administration. We have got to defund all of that, and we're working hard on doing well, that. Well, I mean, honestly, I would think with the exception of defense veterans and maybe border security, uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't go back to 2019 spending. I mean, and it's, it's you know, the kind of B.C. before COVID. Uh, the, we were spending a lot of money then, Andrew, as you know. And it is, you know, we've really got to get back to living within our means. If we went back to twenty those levels in 2019, we would have a balanced budget. That's not that far to go back. And I just, you know, I, I read Lee Iacocca's book years ago. If you haven't read it, you probably should. But basically the theme of the book is you can cut 5% out of anything and not hurt the overall efficiency of it. You know, this idea that you can't cut spending is just wrong. It is absolutely wrong, and we absolutely should be going back to pre-COVID spending levels. 2019 would be great. I would like to see us go back a little lower than that, maybe 2018, 2017, um, because there is so much excess waste in government. You know, you see the weaponization of these agencies. You see the wasteful spending that's, that's going on, and we have got to eliminate that. And I'm very thankful that we now, as part of the deal, uh, the January speaker deal, we have a number of conservatives on the Appropriations Committee, and we are exerting influence in that direction uh, to make sure that we spend less, but not just spending less, but we, we, that we rescind a lot of these what are called advanced appropriations, like with the IRS. You know, this budget deal only took $1.4 billion away from an $80 billion appropriation, an advanced appropriation that is good through 20, the year 2031. We need to, to take every solitary penny of that appropriation back and put it toward our debt reduction. Those are the things that we have to be looking at. And it's not just the IRS. There are other programs out there where Pelosi did advanced appropriations of billions and tens of billions of dollars that need to be rescinded. And that's what we need to look at, too. Andrew Clyde, thank you so much for being with us today. It is uh, Clyde.house.gov, correct? If anybody needs any additional information, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Martha. Putting the talk in News Talk 
It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. We're talking to Governor Scott Walker uh, this morning. He is the president of YAF, Young America's Foundation. And I heard him on a podcast with Dan Crenshaw. And I worked for a period of time with Mark Bednar, who was with Governor Walker for a period of time. And so I said, I got to have him on the program because he's talking about the growth of the Republican Party. And I want to talk about that. So, Scott Walker, welcome back to the program. Hey, good morning. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and I tell you, a little go pack go, right? We got a. Yeah, um, I love it. Everybody loves the Green well, Bay Packers. The thing I, my kids, uh, my kids are twenty seven and twenty eight. But years ago, the, right before I got in the first race for governor, we we took a we decided to take a family trip, and we drove down to my my wife's got some family in Florida, and as we drove through Georgia, my kids were young. And they said, why are all these Packer fans here? And they kept looking at the back of pickup trucks. And in the trail hitch, the cover was a G that looks exactly like the G on the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> of course, it's the Georgia Bulldog. And I said, well, see, we like it in Georgia because the G is the same. And the and Walker is the most famous alumni. So uh, we felt That's right. right. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, of course, recently there was a question on Jeopardy about your governorship where uh, you were the only governor to survive a recall or the the biggest vote. What the was first, the question? The very first, yep. Uh, very they first. They threw about $100 million against us, and uh, they, they couldn't prevail because good people not only in Wisconsin but grassroots folks from across the country, including Georgia. So thank you to everybody listening. Hope uh, made phone calls, knocked on doors, came up and visited with us. And uh, we prevailed, and those reforms are still working. So there's been a lot of polling recently about um, all kinds of issues. But what we're seeing that I think is a common thread is that you're seeing younger people starting to consider conservatism again. You've sort of seen this pendulum swing kind of as far as it has, and now it's coming back the other way, or at least that's a trend I'm seeing in some polling. I know that that's something you're working very hard on, and I wanted to talk about that today. We are at Young America's Foundation. If someone's listening to a student or knows a student, yaf.org, we can help in college, high school, now middle school, uh, and even younger with parents of elementary school parents. But we just know that, that some of the trends that we've seen, be it in your state, my state, Arizona, Pennsylvania, other battleground states with young people voting in the past, is really not because of candidates or even specific issues, because of years of liberal indoctrination. That's the frustrating part. That's what many people hear and see, and they get all upset at this Generation Z. I have the opposite approach. I look at that and say all they hear all they hear time and time again in, in, in the classroom, from their professors, from their teachers, from social media, from media, from Hollywood, is this left-wing rant. And what we found is when we start to break through that, now we got a long ways to go, but when we break through that, these young people open their eyes and suddenly they're like, hey, there, there's something more out there, which I think is the optimism you're seeing. I mean, a good example, we, we did a poll, uh, I remember we were testing this out a year ago, where we found, not surprisingly, when we were polling college students, not our students, but just college students generally, nationwide, uh, a majority of them wanted the federal government to pay for their student loan. Now, now that's not shocking, unfortunately. But then we asked a follow-up question and said, should someone who never went to college have to pay higher taxes to pay off your student loan debt? A solid majority of those students said, no, that's not fair. And so what that tells me is a lot of these issues 
if they only hear the left point of view, that's where they trend. But when we get to break through that, when we start to tell them a little bit of the common sense conservative message that we have, we can actually make inroads with young people all across the nation. Well, you know, I mean, for years, the interest rate that we were, you know, banks were using until recently, until the, the failed Biden administration, was very low. It was a half a percent or one percent. But we were charging kids on student loans six and three quarters percent. So, you know, I've always said I don't like the idea of student loans. My husband and I sacrificed so that our kids didn't have student loans. Uh, and they're very thankful for that. But at the same time, if you do think that education is something that the government should invest in, then you shouldn't be charging exorbitant. You should only charge the very minimum amount of interest for it. You shouldn't be making money off of student loans from students. And I think that's also some unfairness. Yeah, and one more thing on top of it. It's interesting. It it ties in a lot of things you and I and others have been talking about. So these college campuses, as part of their woke agenda, have been adding administrator after administrator, particularly in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as they call it. I, I call it, as we saw at Stanford Law School, uh, the, I called her the dean of exclusion because they only want radical viewpoints to be heard. But when so many of these colleges, uh, public and private alike, are adding, I mean, literally hundreds of administrators in many cases, high-priced, those are dollars that otherwise could either go into the classroom or in many cases could be reduced so that students aren't taking on as high a tuition in the first place. I was proud when I was governor, we, we initiated the very beginning of my tenure, a freeze on tuition in all of our University of Wisconsin system schools. Now, someone like Mitch Daniels, who was, after he was governor of Indiana, became the president of Purdue, they did the same thing. It can be done, but we have to go against this liberal mindset that, that just always says, oh, more money, more money, more money, and somehow that uh, leads to excellence. That's not the case in the private sector. It certainly shouldn't be the case in government. Now, of course, you were a successful two-term governor. Um, I heard you tell a funny line about how people were talking about a few protesters, and you said, what about 100,000 for a month, 100,000 a day for a month? (laughs) Um, So you know about dealing with protesters. We certainly have... Um, uh, you ran for president. We are in a presidential year uh, right now. Uh, we've had three more candidates on the Republican side come in this uh, year. Give us your, I mean, this week, give us your thoughts on kind of the lay of the land right now and what a Republican primary voter needs to be looking at. Yeah, and, and, and this is perfect timing because I just wrote a piece yesterday in the Wall Street Journal that said that what I learned from eight years ago, the mistake I made, was I listened, which is odd because I didn't do it up until that point, whether it was governor, county executive or anything before, but I listened to the Washington consultants who told me to play it safe, just run on my record. Instead, what primary voters want is a bold plan. The, the voters want a bold leadership. <clears throat> and in the election and the first couple debates eight years ago, the only one of the 17 of us who was doing it was Donald Trump. You know, he, he, whether you agreed with him or not, he was spelling it out. He was going to drain the swamp. He was going to build a wall. He, he went through these things. And I, I think that's a lesson that any of these candidates need to learn from. And that is, if you want to capture not only the nomination, if you want to win in battleground states like Georgia, like Wisconsin, like Arizona, you got to spell a bold, clear agenda going forward. Yeah, it's great. Your record gets you to the starting line but i was a runner in school so you can win a race but on the next race you don't get to start that far ahead of everybody else 
you start at the same spot that every other runner does, and that's two here right now in the primaries. You, each of those candidates, including President Trump, have to spell a bold agenda going forward. And voters, I think, need to look at that. They need to who's got the best, who's got the best plan, and who is most capable to actually implement it. You add those two things together, and then the third component is who then got the best plan and can actually do it. Who then is best qualified? to defeat uh, the incumbent right now, Joe Biden. Lord knows we need him out of office. So tell us, let's get back to Young America's Foundation. Tell us what they do and how people can get involved. Yeah, simplest way to explain it is we train the next generation of leaders in the fight for freedom. Uh, These are college students, they're high school students. We're now just expanding our programs in the middle school. Uh, We have chapters, we have members, uh, we have conferences, uh, we own the Reagan Ranch out in California. We have the Reagan Boy at Home in the Midwest. We have offices in Virginia and pro- programs out in California. We just had, excuse me, out in uh, Washington, D.C. We just had a middle school program up at Mount Vernon. Uh, people can go to yaf.org. If you're a student listening, you're under attack, you're getting grief, you want to bring a speaker into campus, you want to bring a speaker to school, you're getting pushback from your principal or your administrator, we've got your back, yaf.org. And uh, we, most cases, these conferences, uh, we, we, we have a minimal charge just to make sure people show up, but the rest of it, uh, the food, the hotel, all those things are covered, and we get some of the best conservative speakers in the movement there. Well, and I tell you, too, just one final question is that we're, you know, we're coming into an election year. It's important that our message gets out. And I think it's important that we're positive and we're forward looking because people really don't want to hear about what happened two years ago, four years ago, eight years ago. They want to hear what are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? How do we get that message out well, one, we got to go to places where we haven't been heard before. I, I give credit to, and I, I'm not endorsing any of the candidates, but Senator Tim Scott, for example, earlier this week went on The View. Um, and, and he didn't just pick a fight, but he didn't back down. Uh, he, he walks through why he disagreed with their premise on school choice. He made the case as to why it's better to fund students and not just systems out there. I think we need to do that. And then we've got to be willing to go to uh, not only other places, but in unique ways. I'll give you an example. So, as I mentioned, we provide support for lectures, more conservative uh, campus lectures than any other group in America. Those are great. You might get a Ben Shapiro or uh, Katie Pavlich or Rachel Campbell's Duffy to come on campus. We might have uh, two, 3,000 students there. But then we broadcast that on our YouTube channel that now has over a million and a quarter subscribers. First quarter of this year already, we have over 250 million views. We're on our way to a billion. That's something that just a few years ago wasn't even on our radar. So to get, in our case specifically, to get to younger voters, to younger people, it's not just about talking on Hollywood or talking on TV. Increasingly, it's going to where they're at and being willing to go a little bit about our comfort zone and, and talk about things that are important. Anybody's listening, for example, if you've got grandkids and tell people you're a grandparent, you probably have even more influence over those kids than your, than your kids, their parents do. But don't talk at them. Talk with them about what's important to you and what's important to them and listen to them and have a real conversation. You can make a difference. Governor Scott Walker, thank you so much for your time today and have a great weekend. You too. God bless. 
To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.